0: In this season of Reconstructing Faith, we've been looking at different challenges to the health and witness of the Church, the areas where rebuilding will be necessary in the days to come. Some of you have passed along questions, comments, and thoughts prompted by the episodes. Thank you for that. A number of you sent me a clip from Season 2 of Loki, one of the shows from Marvel Studios, now streaming on Disney+. Now, I won't go into detail on this series. Loki involves thought experiments and ideas common to the sci-fi genre, including time travel. What I want to point out is the underlying question the show raises. It's about institutions and their importance, how we should respond to injustice and failure. It's a debate between those who believe the only way forward is deconstruction and those who work for reformation. That's what's at stake in a conversation between Loki and Sylvie in season two, episode four. What if you're wrong? What if you are wrong to believe that this place can be any better?
1: It would just be easier to burn this place down and start from scratch. Sure. Burn it down. Easy. Annihilating is easy. Raising things to the ground is easy. Trying to fix what's broken is hard. Hope is hard.
0: Hope is hard. But hope is a Christian virtue. Hope is something we are to be known for. If there's a takeaway from the second season of Loki, it's not just that it's better to be a reformer who wants to preserve and improve the institution to make it better. It's being aware that the methods you use for preserving an institution can go horribly wrong as we've seen in many cases, where out of a sense of obligation, maybe even concern for the church, people defend the indefensible or excuse the inexcusable. Institutional renewal, rightly understood, requires personal sacrifice.
1: As its current guardian watched through tears.
2: This is a national disaster. I'm very upset. This cathedral is 850 years old, and to see the building fall to pieces, the spire fall down, Just as we were renovating it, all I can do is pray.
0: In the first episode of this season, we looked at the reconstruction of Notre Dame after the fire. The painstaking work of refashioning and rebuilding, a place that took centuries to construct. Rebuilding requires sacrifice, a dogged commitment to seeing the task through. In the words of Winston Churchill, Blood, toil, tears, and sweat. If this is the case for churches, it's also the case for families of churches, for networks and partnerships, conventions, and denominations. In episode two, we looked at the trend of de-churching we've seen the past 20 years. People drifting away from the church is one of the biggest stories in religion reporting right now, of course. But the other big story is about the shifting landscape of those who do belong to a church— I'm talking about the decline of most denominations in America and the rise of non-denominational churches in Protestant Christianity. Get this. In 1972, less than 3% of American adults said they were non-denominational. That number rose to 7.5% in 2004 and 10% in 2012. Now, it's 13% of all American adults. To put that in perspective, there are more non-denominational churches in the U.S. than all mainline Protestants combined. More and more Christians are joining churches that are not affiliated with a specific network, convention, or denomination. What's more, even the churches that are part of a family or network, like the Presbyterians or Methodists or Baptists, often don't broadcast their affiliation. I know those of you who listen to this podcast come from a variety of backgrounds you may carry some denominational baggage from your past. You may be working for renewal in your family of churches right now. Maybe you're in a non-denominational church today. Wherever you are, wherever God has placed you right now, you can and should care about the health of the church down the street and the health of networks and denominations that go beyond your local church. Denominations, conventions, families of churches, renewal here, will have an outsized impact. That's worth fighting for. Yes, when faced with injustice or corruption or disagreement, a church or an individual can always withdraw from broader institutional structures and start over. But what about those who remain? What does reconstruction work look like, not just in a local church, but also for networks and partnerships? How do we look beyond our congregation to the health of the evangelical movement as a whole. I'm Trevin Wax, Vice President of Research and Resource Development at the North American Mission Board. You're listening to Reconstructing Faith. In this series, we address different challenges facing the church today, offering perspective from church history and the global church, so that we meet this moment with a posture of faith, not fear, through the power of the Spirit. I hope you'll join me on this journey and consider what you can contribute to the task of restoring and rebuilding, working toward a healthier body of Christ in the days ahead. This is the final episode of season two, Better Together, Denominations and Evangelical Renewal.
2: Every family has family stories. This is your full family.
3: Wait, stop. Is this a joke? No. I gotta chill. (laughs) Henry Louis Gates helps them discover a past they never knew. I promised
2: myself I wouldn't
3: cry. I'm feeling history.
0: One of the most popular shows on PBS in the past decade is Finding Your Roots, hosted by Henry Louis Gates. He takes participants, usually celebrities, on a journey into the past, tracing their family stories and helping them connect with those who came before the success of Finding Your Roots, and the popularity of family tree websites—all this taps into our human curiosity about personal identity and heritage. Not long ago, I discovered that my twelfth great-grandfather on my mother's side was William Whittaker, an Anglican theologian in the 16th century who wrote a 600-page defense in Latin on the Reformation doctrine, Sola scriptura I've got his book on my desk upstairs, and I've been working my way through it. There's something powerful in knowing your roots, your connection to those who have gone before you. It's not surprising, then, that one of the most common questions that comes up in church life is, what are we, and how are we different from that church across town? Many Christians are curious about their heritage. What makes a Baptist a Baptist? A Nazarene a Nazarene? A Methodist a Methodist? What's the difference between an Anglican and a Presbyterian? In Assemblies of God Church, from the Church of God in Christ.
2: A lot of people get freaked out at church. I don't, I love doing comedy in churches, man.
0: This is the comedian Tim Hawkins.
2: I do comedy for all kinds of denominations, you know, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Pentecostal. (laughs)
3: Lutheran, non-denominational, non-denominational. They don't know what they are.
2: (laughs) Non-denominational. You're not fooling anybody. This means you're a Baptist church with a cool website. That's all that means right there. That's all that means. Seriously, folks, if you can't laugh at yourself, come on. (laughs) Laugh at other people. That's what I say. Seriously.
0: Baptists, Lutherans, Anglicans, Pentecostals. How should we view denominations? Does the existence of different kinds of churches represent disobedience to Christ and his desire for unity? Nearly a hundred years ago, the scholar H. Richard Niebuhr wrote
2: this. Christendom has often achieved success by ignoring the precepts of its founder. Denominationalism in the Christian church is an unacknowledged hypocrisy. It is a compromise made far too lightly between Christianity and the world. The division of the churches closely follows the division of men into the castes of national, racial, and
3: economic groups.
0: Niebuhr pointed out that it's much too simplistic to think that denominations can be explained merely by creedal differences. On the contrary, many churches and groups are divided by color and class. The creedal differences, while important, he'd say, are often a respectable gloss on a more scandalous reason for contemporary divisions. That's a hard-hitting analysis. And since the Reformation, we find in church history many sad examples that back up Niebuhr's critique. Perhaps the most notable example is in the circumstances that necessitated the birth of the black church. Richard Allen was one of the most amazing Christians to live during the American Revolutionary Era. He was born into slavery, trusted in Christ as a teenager, converted his master— Purchased his freedom, rode the circuit as a preacher with the famous Methodist preacher Francis Asbury, served as a chimney sweep, perhaps even for George Washington, survived yellow fever, and then, in 1787, he walked out of St. George's Methodist Church with his assistant, Absalom Jones, and several other black people who were accosted after kneeling in new pews that had been reserved for whites. That walkout was the beginning of Bethel Church. Known now as Mother Bethel, and the seeds were planted that would blossom into the African Methodist Episcopal Church. We are inspired by such a courageous stand against injustice. But it's sad that the dominant churches of the time were so compromised as to seek to remove black brothers and sisters kneeling in prayer. This is a clear example of a denominational identity that began not due to doctrinal differences, but because of the racism and white supremacy in the church at the time. Still, as messy and horrible as our history is, and there's no sugarcoating it, it's also true that many Christians inhabit different faith traditions today because of theological conviction, or church structure and practice, because of matters of conscience and seeking to interpret and apply the scriptures faithfully.
2: I think one way of looking at denominations is very much like this concern, where this is uh, just an an example of how divided the body of Christ is. This is wrong. We need to, you know, find some way to eliminate denominations to have unity.
0: This is Gavin Ortland, an apologist and pastor, and the author of Finding the Right Hills to Die On, and Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't. He hosts the Truth Unites channel on YouTube.
2: But I kind of take a view of it from the exact opposite direction of recognizing different denominations is actually one of the ways we can try to seek unity because denominations is a way of recognizing those other people are part of the body of Christ. Those are the sheep of Christ. They are a part of the church and we're not relegating them outside of the church. And so the word denomination is just a way of getting at that, that you know our conscience requires us to separate sometimes when we have a theological distinctive that we believe God is calling us to function in a certain way, but then you're able to recognize people whose consciences incline them differently on that issue. In some cases, they're still Christians and they're still churches and, and, you know, we can have that broader fellowship with them.
0: So the, the denominations basically allow for distinction, but not necessarily disunity in the sense of, even though we're not necessarily all members of the same local congregation because of some of those distinctive, you're saying that denominations allow us if understood rightly, allow us to actually be in a communion of some sort with people from other uh, uh, from other churches.
2: Yes, exactly. They, it's, it's just a way of recognizing that even though we don't have a, a full and institutional alignment, these other Christians are a, a valid church. We might say that their sacraments are valid. We might be partaking of the Lord's Supper with them, potentially and we would say that they have been validly baptized, and we would say they are going to heaven and so forth, and all of these things are gloriously true. What's on my conscience about this is in, I think it's in Mark 9, where the disciples want to stop someone else doing an exorcism in Christ's name because they didn't do it, and and Jesus rebukes that sort of sectarian spirit, and he says, you know, remember, whoever is not against us is for us. And I think that that way of thinking just you know, requires us to recognize there are genuine Christians advancing the kingdom of Christ outside of our own network and tribe and even our sphere of awareness. You know, I just assume that the Church of Christ is moving forward in ways that I'm just not even aware of, let alone institutionally connected to.
0: I asked Gavin to give us the broad overview of Christianity's family tree, how it maps out, before looking at individual Protestant groups.
2: Maybe if we were to step back and look at the 2,000-year span of church history at the kind of broadest possible level, looking at the forest rather than the trees, we might think of like five buckets that might represent kind of five major sectors of Christendom. That uh, And and this is not exhaustive, though. There's lots of splinter groups even beyond these five. But you might think of, uh, first, the... uh, Syrian Church of the East and the oriental Orthodox Church These two often get left off these result from uh, splits in the fifth century about Christology or the doctrine of Christ they're a little smaller today then you have the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church uh, they trace their division back to 1054 the 11th century um, and then you have the Protestant Reformation which represents a number of different traditions so just getting kind of oriented you see these, kind of different kind of sections of of Christendom. And then within Protestantism, you might think that there's sort of five planks. There's more than this, but but the main players within Protestantism, you might think of five and then plus the charismatic movement, which is huge. And the charismatic movement of the 20th century and into the 21st has completely changed the face of Christendom because it's so massive. But you think of, first of all, the Lutheran tradition, the Reformed tradition, and the Anglican tradition— and then you have Methodism, which is a kind of renewal movement within Anglicanism. And then you have the Baptist tradition. And also Congregationalists would probably fit into this as well as us, us one stream within the Reformed tradition. So that's just trying to get oriented to some of the labels and kind of a sense of the lay of the land there.
0: Okay, so let's dig in a little bit on the Protestant side, because most people listening to this are are going to be in the you know these Reformational churches. So let's say you've got someone who's in a non-denominational church, and they're like, "I don't know where I would fit in that tree because we don't claim any denominational heritage or rootedness. How do you help the person get oriented as to which one of those th- those, you know, five planks or those buckets that you say are are what we have in Protestantism?
2: Mm -hmm. well people who are part of a non-denominational church basically non-denominational churches are just congregational churches so congregational church polity means there's a belief in the autonomy of the local church and so non-denominational churches will sometimes be part of a broader network or set of associations but they're the final court of appeal for their polity and their governance is just that local congregation itself and that's a you know that that would be similar to baptists and congregationalists But whether it's non-denom or the other Protestant denominations, the basic insight I would want to put forward here is that as Protestants, we trace our history all the way back to Christ because the Protestant Reformation was not the start of a new church. It was an attempt to reform the one true church of Jesus Christ. And uh, although, you know, some of our friends in other traditions will, will disagree with us on this point, I think you can make a great case historically that the Reformers were going back in history to the earliest of times and pairing off what we call accretions, these things that had built up over the years, whether it's indulgences or the belief in seven sacraments or purgatory or other things like this. And they were trying to go back to what the apostles taught and what the earliest Christians taught. And so a Protestant today need not feel overwhelmed or intimidated by these charges against us. You know, where was your, what are the origins of your church? However, I also think we should approach these questions with a humble attitude because many Protestants are too quick to divide. Many Protestants are kind of historically naive and and rootless and not very connected. And so I think the appropriate posture is we should kind of humbly study these historical matters and then we should have an open heart to consider, well, maybe I need to change in my thinking along the way. Maybe I need to adjust and maybe I need to consider how how Christ is calling me to be more unified with the broader church.
0: What are the different patterns that you see as being here are the main fault lines? Or like here's what actually winds up Separating Christians into different different groups, different churches. Are there two or three that you point to that you would say these tend to be at the root of the formation of different denominations? Or is it just there's so many you really couldn't narrow them down to to, to just a few?
2: I have often thought about the sacraments, really the sacraments first and foremost, but then also church governance type questions and to some extent kind of spiritual gifts and offices in the church but honestly the the biggest one that first leaps out to me as what is often a deal breaker for formal connection with other christians is the sacraments how many sacraments are there and how should they be practiced you know many of the splits that happen in church history can be traced back to this point of the sacraments you think of in 1529 at the marburg Colloquy, there was a division between two of the reformers, Luther and Zwingli, and it concerned the nature of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. Then you think of Jonathan Edwards getting dismissed from his church. That was connected to different views of the Lord's Supper. You think of the Baptist tradition, our our very name concerns, our view of that that one sacrament. But when it comes to the sacraments, you just have to practice the sacraments as the church. And so they become a more practical wedge issue. So if there's one, and and this is so tragic because the sacraments are supposed to be a, a symbol of unity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, there's one loaf and that's a symbol of our unity so you know this it's it's interesting that that would be an area where i think all evangelical protestants especially would do well to give more study to, especially to their histories, to look into the sacraments, because so many divisions trace back to this question, and they're often underemphasized. And then you think of church government issues, you know, this is a big issue that would divide like Presbyterians from like independent Puritans, for example. You know, do you believe that each local church is autonomous, or do you believe in the idea of a the interconnectional church government in some form or another. And that would be true of the Anglicans as well, for example. So these issues are really divisive because they're so practical.
0: Okay. So you mentioned the sacraments, you mentioned church government. Are there any others that you find sort of patterns as to why different churches or denominations, why these offshoots take place?
2: I think perhaps one kind of perennial dynamic we might think of is churches often as all institutions tend to change over time and become more hardened and crystallized in some of their structures and in some of their boundaries. And sometimes the the original life of that movement starts to fade over time. And so one of the things that you often see is a new denomination or a new tradition will emerge as an effort of renewal. You know, there will be a, a perception that, you know, the boundaries have been set too narrowly. You could see Methodism as this kind of spontaneous renewal effort within the Anglican tradition, But then, of course, it's just amazing over time, you know, we cannot guarantee that any one particular tradition within the church or expression of the church will always remain spiritually vital. And sometimes we do tend to kind of stray into traditionalism and formalism, and that can happen in any context. And so I think one of the factors that leads to these splits is where there's that kind of hardening or drifting into traditionalism. There's often these efforts that try to correct that through renewal, and oftentimes that leads to a split.
0: So I'd like us to go rapid fire through a bunch of different denominations, and I'm going to see how, how quickly we can do this, but we'll zero in on Protestantism. Let's start with, since it is the third largest international Christian family of churches, let's start with the Anglican Communion Worldwide. Anglicans.
2: Anglicanism, you know, traces back to the 16th century. This is the Church of England, Henry VIII wanting a divorce as a part of the, the origins of the Church of England splitting off. Anglican is often seen as kind of the middle way or the via media between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. But I would say the Anglican tradition is pretty squarely within the Protestant camp in the main. You know, there's if you look at the 39 articles, which are the doctrinal standards for Anglicanism, there's pretty, it's pretty solidly Protestant in its main beliefs. So Anglicanism has, is such a rich tradition, such a huge tradition. It's growing worldwide, especially in the, in the Southern Hemisphere. And you think of great Anglicans like C.S. Lewis and John Stott and so many others.
0: All right, Lutheranism.
2: Lutheranism obviously traces back to Martin Luther himself and his early followers. So, you know, they still have a very high view of the of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, for example. They believe in real presence. Luther's view is a little bit different from the Roman Catholic view, but it's it's closer to that than like a, a low church evangelical memorialist view, for example. So Lutherans have a high emphasis upon the sacraments, a high emphasis upon liturgy, The Lutheran tradition has a bit more of an emphasis upon mystery, you might say. There's a lot of richness within Lutheranism in terms of just scholarship and also great Christians. You think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You think of Richard Wurmbrandt, great Lutheran pastor. Yeah.
0: Romanian as well. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But Lutherans really emphasize justification by faith alone. All Protestants believe in justification by faith alone, that we're made right with God on terms of faith only. But the Lutherans emphasize that within their broader theology so much. And sometimes the Reformed have a concern that they're sort of over centralizing it at times. What about Presbyterians? So Presbyterianism is one stream within the Reformed tradition. A lot of Presbyterians will use the Westminster standards as their statement of faith, this set of 17th century documents, the Westminster Confession and larger and shorter Catechism, for example the term comes from the office of presbyter or elder and presbyterians are often associated with kind of an orderly approach to church government and theology they're often associated with a high view of god's sovereignty so if people have heard of the view of calvinism which is a way of understanding god's sovereignty and salvation this view is associated with presbyterians of course going back to calvin himself Presbyterianism is kind of, if you're thinking of a spectrum of the Protestant traditions and how far they have sort of moved away from Roman Catholicism, you might think of the Presbyterians as kind of between the Anglicans and the Baptists because they go further than the Anglicans but not as far as the Baptists. I think in terms of liturgy as well, I mean, a lot of Presbyterian churches do have kind of a more self-consciously chosen form, expression of worship, whereas Baptists are sometimes seen as a bit more free-spirited. So it's just kind of a general general distinction there, I guess.
0: What about the Methodists?
2: Methodists trace their origins back to John Wesley in the 18th century and this sort of reform movement or renewal effort within Anglicanism that emphasized especially holiness of life. So one of the great things to admire about, I, I really admire John Wesley. I think he was an amazing Christian man. I think one of the things to admire about the Wesleyan tradition is this emphasis upon personal holiness, consecration to God. Now, that will be fleshed out in a particular theological system. And so even those Christians who are of different traditions, who are not Methodists, and may differ with some of the technical specifics, I think can still really appreciate this emphasis. Methodism has historically placed a huge emphasis upon sanctification, inner holiness, communion with God, and so forth.
0: Okay, now to the tradition you and I belong to, the Baptists.
2: This is a contested question, and there are some different views about how Baptists understand their history and their origins. The Baptist tradition, I think the best view is that we trace our origins back to the 17th century in Great Britain, and basically Baptists were those who, this is one stream within the reformed stream. So among the Puritans, those who are seeking to purify the church, some came to the view that we should delay baptism until a person makes a credible profession of faith. And that conviction combined with belief in independent church government or that each local congregation is autonomous and often combined with an emphasis upon the separation of church and state are some of the early key emphases that distinguish baptists from other reformed christians. So i think the best i think the best way to understand baptist origins is it's one sort of reform effort within the puritan stream in the early well in the 17th century in great britain.
0: How would you talk about the pentecostal and charismatic traditions?
2: Yeah, the charismatic movement is this fascinating development especially throughout the 20th century. The charismatic movement is it's not completely separable from other traditions because it kind of seeps into other traditions. So you can find language about charismatic Christians within these other traditions. But what's amazing about the charismatic movement, and of course, their their emphasis upon um, miraculous spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues and prophecy and healings, discerning of spirits, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and so forth, and more of an emphasis upon spiritual warfare, sometimes a more emotive expression of worship, and so forth— is the, the, the sheer size of the charismatic movement. It's completely changed the face of Christendom because, especially in the Southern Hemisphere, it's just been an explosion of of growth throughout the 20th century.
0: One of the things we haven't mentioned is in most of the denominations that we've talked about or the overarching headings that we're giving to denominations, so Presbyterianism, Methodism, Baptist, Anglican, is generally speaking, even Lutherans, generally speaking, you will find denominational division within those bigger headings over, you know, you could trace it all the way back to sort of fundamentalism, modernism kind of So You'll have more like a liberal wing versus traditional conservative wings. Where does that fit on how we view the landscape of these denominations we've been talking about?
2: So when people ask me, you know, what kind of church would be the best one for me to attend in my particular area, I can never give an answer in the abstract because it depends upon the particular nature of the church. You can find a a church of any particular denomination that may be very liberal or very fundamentalist kind of leaning. So you have to factor that into all your other evaluations and denominationally, but may feel a great affinity because they might be similar in their sort of cultural stance. And so they might be fighting the same social issues and other cultural battles. And so that kind of just is another whole complicated factor that influences how we try to, it can be overwhelming and kind of dizzying to try to take stock of all the, the different sort of contours of of Christian unity today. But, you know, a prayer i often just come back to is to to pray for revival and renewal in the church and when that happens you know the fact is one of the things if there's nothing else we learn from church history it's that god's people frequently and consistently tend to sort of drift away and need to be renewed we don't just automatically remain in a spiritually vital and and life-giving place and so it's a reminder for us today when we look around and we see the church today. One of the things we should pray for is reunifying of Christians, refortifying of Christians, regathering of Christians, renewing and, and reviving of Christians. And uh, the way we do that is we go back to the gospel message itself. We focus upon Christ Himself. And it's amazing. It can be overwhelming to see all the divisions, but it's also wonderful to come back and focus upon Christ Himself. And all of a sudden, it, my experience is. When you make a radical focus upon Christ himself, you find surprising unity in places you didn't expect it. All of a sudden you find these other people who have the same love for Jesus and the same basic gospel posture in their heart. So as discouraging as it can be to see all of the division within Christendom, there are these pockets of great hope where when God is doing renewal, it powerfully draws people together.
0: The most important thing that we can do as lovers of our neighbor uh, and servants of God. This is J.I. Packer, author of Knowing God. The most important thing that we can do is to make the gospel credible, attractive, show ourselves totally committed to it, demonstrate its power in our own lives, but always with the outward look, for the kingdom of God is meant to spread worldwide. The kingdom of God is meant to spread worldwide. And it has. Christianity's tree has many branches. But here in the United States, for the most part, denominations and networks are seeing decline. The number of non-denominational churches is rising. Which raises the question, why? What are the benefits and drawbacks of belonging to a network or being affiliated with a family of churches? Is there a future for denominations? And if so, what should that future look like? More on that in a moment. Sharing the gospel is the church's calling in every generation. How to Create a Culture of Evangelism helps pastors who desire change in their church's DNA so their congregation is marked by personal evangelism. This is a free course. It will help you understand why churches need a culture of evangelism, not just a short-term campaign. It will increase your church's level of evangelistic engagement and help you develop a passion for personal evangelism in your people. Visit nam.net slash evangelism for more information on this course.
3: came to Christ in the charismatic movement of the Episcopal Church. So, you know, it was a robust time of people responding to the gospel. Charismatic movement had sort of broken out of Pentecostalism into mainline denominations. So, you know, I started in a denomination that would, well, continue to move away from some of the truths that I believed theologically.
0: This is Ed Stetzer, Dean of Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. He is a missiologist, he's planted several churches, and he is regional director for Lausanne, North America. I don't know anyone more broadly connected across the denominational landscape or who has spoken at more denominational gatherings than Ed.
3: Then I started being discipled in an Assemblies of God church. I went to this robust student ministry. And so I really, you know, started off in almost like straddling two denominational traditions at the same time. And so yeah, I guess probably from the the beginning that was probably part of my origin story is I, I just, I, I having seen God at work in different denominational traditions, I never found my denomination to be a prison. I always found it to be a home.
0: I'm just curious, as one who's seen the inside of a lot of different denominations and a lot of different traditions, are there common patterns? What are some of the the, the differences and, and similarities you find?
3: Yeah, so I think part of what they recognize is that denominations, which everyone, you know, I mean, everyone, like so many people are anti-denominational. And, I, and I, I understand why, because they see the the underbelly of that and the negativity of that. And yet the problem is, is that when you look to the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations, and you or your church is the, you know, the first church of Seattle, you quickly realize that the first church of Seattle or Sellersburg or wherever can't do the great commission without finding other partners to do the great commission so you create denominations out of the commands of Jesus so or networks or partnerships we even see some of that i mean paul clearly relied on partner churches he actually said to them hey you you guys should partner with this you know you help with this do this offering over here so i think that for a lot of people who live in a we live in sort of a, a, a de, an age where denominations have perceptionally fallen on hard times, uh, I, I think that I just come to the conclusion that you can't do things that you're called to do in the scriptures without other partners to do them with. So what happens is, you know, these come in life cycles, right? So, you know, I just came back from the Vineyard National Conference in the UK and Ireland, right? So the Vineyard is was started within my lifetime. And Yet it's pretty, and it was started as a network at first, a loose network, and then eventually, you know, they had some issues. So they tightened here and they tightened there and they addressed credentialing questions and, and you know, governance questions. And and soon that loose network became a tighter network and that tighter network became a denomination. And then it, you know, that's, that's the normal process. So... Take the networks that have formed in the last, you know, decade or so, you see the same pattern, but they're earlier in there. So the Methodists were in a denomination. I mean, John Wesley died an Anglican priest. So what happens is that network becomes more formal network, which becomes a loose denomination, which often becomes a more structured denomination. Another commonality is, is that they always struggle with every step of the way, how much should be a local church issue and how much should be a denominational issue. They always tend to expand into ever-growing areas of focus. So maybe it started at first, we were just missions, right? So maybe that's not an uncommon thing. We're just going to do missions together. So then they tend to expand their footprint of what they do. And... And, you know, the larger denominations start generally with missions and maybe go to evangelism and, and then they go to some sort of pension board or some sort of means that ministers can actually put away retirement. And sometimes they go into insurance and sometimes they go into credentialing, right? So who credentials the ministers? And, and you know, if you're theologically your local church only, that that doesn't happen. But for most denominations, they're not that. So that becomes a commonality. Everyone has a credentialing system. And then, and then the part of the commonality is is everyone sort of wrestles with who we should be about and what we should be doing and who should be on the team with us. Those are all commonalities that I've seen
0: right now the The big story of the American church and the church in the West, so to speak, is the the rise of non-denominational churches. What do you think is driving that? and what are the the benefits and the the drawbacks to the rise of non-denominationalism?
3: I think the cachet of denominations just has declined. But I would say, too, one of the things you just got to acknowledge is that denominations can fight a lot. And uh, some denominations fight more than others. A denomination perpetually at war with itself is just a machine of expulsion of people to non-denominational Protestantism. So I talked to Frank Newport from Gallup, and one of the things he talked about is that non-denominationalism has tended to attract some of the, the best and the brightest leaders and pastors. And I think, you know, when denominations have a maybe a bad name or a bad reputation because of constant infighting or whatever else it may be, some of your best leaders migrate out of that into a non-denominational tradition. And the end result is, Frank Newport would say, you know, you get your best leaders over there, that's going to be the area where some of the churches are growing the most. So I, I do think denominations have to take a hard look at themselves and say, Why is it that we're so driven by issues other than the issues that brought us together in the first place? The Great Commission, you know, remember, almost all denominations were founded with a focus on global missions. So the healthiest denomination, in my view, are led by pastors and are focused on missions. And when those two things take place, I think denominations tend to have a healthy vibrancy that moves on. When they end up being led by people who are parsers of everything, uh, then the challenge is, is that they tend to parse a whole lot of people right out of the denominational family.
0: People tend to have a negative view of institutions today. There are bureaucracies and denominations. So it takes time to get things done. It takes additional effort. The impact of a of a group, a network, a denomination, an institution that's been going for a long time is vastly underestimated when compared to the 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 impact of quick startups and and networks and even non-denominational churches working in isolation at some
3: level so I'm an institutionalist, an apologetic one because to see it takes longer to get things done, but you get more done. I recently was having a Conversation with a a church planting leader of one of the most significant church planting organizations in the world, non denominational, not particularly interested in denomination. And for years has been saying, you know, denominations, let's just all form new networks. And I said to him, but you notice the resurgence of denominations again. So since you've been leading this organization, Denominations come and go. I'm not saying it's going great all the time, but denominations come and go. They're always in the process of forming and reforming, and they often get refocused on, in this case, church planting and evangelism. And right now, the church planting that's taking place with some of our denominations is, is just as robust, maybe even more robust than it was 10 years ago. And I think in part of that, because networks sort of became a rebuke to denominations. And so denominations then formed this fascinating strategy because everyone was going to the networks. They were going to interdenominational networks. So you know what the Assemblies of God did? You know what the Wesleyans did? You know what the Southern Baptists did? They created intra-denominational networks so that their church planners didn't feel like aliens when they showed up at the annual meeting of the denomination. But instead, they maybe had a pre-meeting or they had another meeting. And all of a sudden, they're like, hey... Wait a second, all the energy that I saw in these interdenominational networks, I've got now this energy as an intra or inside the denominational network. So, So I think ultimately people who bet on the failure of denominations have actually bet pretty badly. Everyone that I know that's written off denominations have actually ended up saying 10 years later, wow, no, this denomination has persevered and continues to make an impact. I'll give you one example. So one day I was sitting in the parking lot at the North American Mission Board, where I was the missiologist in residence and the head of research. And I was just thinking, it was just another difficult day in the denominational drama that often dominates that particular tradition. And I called a friend of mine. And what he said is, you know, come work for me. They're fighting over a corpse, referring to the denomination. And, uh, and I find it interesting that that had to be a call. Let me see. Let me say It's maybe 20 years ago that the influence of that 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 pastor still has remarkable personal influence, but very little paradigm influence today. And I think to myself, um, continue to see the work that the SEND network is doing and others are doing, because at the end of the day, it wasn't a corpse, but at the end of the day, denominations endure and they impact because they're, they have a, a, an inertia. And that inertia, when people lean into that inertia, right, when people say, well, I can help direct this to a greater passion for church planting and evangelism, if you can actually pull that off, it might take five years, but the end result is a greater impact. when To be perfectly honest, I mean, think about the non-denominational things that have, that have come and gone that we're going to change everything institutions endure and continue to make an impact.
0: So let's say that there's someone who's heard everything you've said here about how a denomination endures and how it has an impact. And they're asking the question, okay, my denomination, my group, my network, partnership, convention, family of churches, whatever they call it, needs renewal. I want to build something. I don't want to just, I just, I don't want to just, you know, blame the bureaucracy for all of the problems and the woes in my denomination. I want to actually do something to see a missional renewal take place. What are the ingredients that must be present for a denomination to be renewed rather than broken down or or deconstructed?
3: Well, there are tipping points where denominations can be too late, where the worst actors have become the central players. And when the worst actors have become the central players, you have to ask hard questions about the investment of your time and your energy. I think, however, decisions are made by people who show up. And to lean into a denominational family to say, I want to invest my time and my energy helping this denominational or network family better focus on the things that matter most, uh, the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, whatever it may be, how your denominational tradition frames it. I think ultimately you want to look for certain factors that would say this could work. And I would say, for example, a a clear denominational statement of faith of this is what we believe and how we're going to cooperate together. The challenge is some denominations, it seems like their statement of faith is something they take on and off like a shirt. And so you've got to have a clear standard by which you cooperate and not changing it constantly and simultaneously not discarding it or saying it doesn't matter or functionally acting as if you don't have a denominational statement of faith. So I would say a robust statement of faith that is affirmed and stable so that people can say, this is the basis of our cooperation. That's certainly number one. Number two is I, I think, and this is a tricky one because right now with the world being on fire like it is, it's harder, but some sort of means to find ways to cooperate together. Now it's It's a little tricky because you know you're talking to a broad audience here and some denominations are almost purely democratic that's very unusual so typically there's some sort of uh the symbols of god has the executive presbyters for example or some sort of uh sometimes i was just at one meeting where the regional leaders folk function as a national board so there tends to be different ways that people do that but if there's no ability let's say the denomination needs renewal and people who think it needs renewal have no ability to speak up, out, or affect that renewal, I think ultimately, I mean, it's a closed system and you can't make an impact. Well, if the systems and structures are closed and have moved away from orthodoxy, you can't do that. And I, I would say certainly there are some denominations today that have just moved so far theologically. I mean, again, it's not popular to say, but to say, you know, that this is now outside of what Christianity is. And therefore, I've got to go somewhere else, engage in a different place and build something different. And that's unfortunately, that happens often because people engage too late.
0: What encourages you most about the future of denominations? What are the characteristics of the denominations that you see thriving today? In an anti-institutional age, it stands out even more if a denomination is thriving and growing. So what are the characteristics you see?
3: Yeah, so the denominations I see that are thriving, and I, I think I've, by my last count, I've kind of been at the national meeting of 62 different denominations, not counting anyone twice. I just came to a couple last week where I was, I'd been there before. So, you know, there's a breadth of denominations that are out there. And so, and I've consulted with probably about 10 closer up, and it seems to me that some of the things they have in common are, there's kind of a desire to partner together for the purpose of the mission. So, for example, they don't feel like their denominational giving is a tax and an obligation, but a joy because they're partnering together for, for global missions. So whatever that might be, their fair share, when the denomination calls it, uh, cooperative program, you know, joint giving, whatever whatever people call it. So there's a joy because it's commonly brought together for the mission. I think, too, there's, there's an enthusiasm about being in the denominational family. But the example that I like to use is of a yo-yo in a string. And I know this is strange, but stay with me. So if you take a yo-yo and you start spinning it around on a string, there's an outward force that we call popularly it's the centrifugal force. And it goes, so the spin, spinning around, the, the yo-yo goes away. And, you know, the faster you go, the more the yo-yo is kind of going outward and it actually unfold, you know, unrolls outward. And I think that's the the de- thing that makes a denomination work is it's outwardly focused centripet- centripetal mission. But there's another force that's being engaged in, for, in order for it to work. Right. That's the and it, again, I'm using the terms popularly physics professors would quibble. But the other force being exerted is the centripetal force and the string is is exerting that centripetal force. So, and we want it to, right? Or else the yo-yo would fly off, right? So the string is holding us together, keeping us in an orbit together. Now, good denominations, healthy denominations recognize that they need both a centrifugal focus and a centripetal focus. Centrifugal is the outwardly focused church planting missions, caring for communities, impacting people through works of service, right? So that's the centrifugal outward force. And yet if all you have is that you don't have the structures to support that. And like the yo-yo, it flies off into the distance. So the string sort of maintains and, and sometimes people despise the string, but the, the string means that somebody is helping with a, a process to uh, to train and to screen or screen and to train missionaries. Somebody's working with church planting. Somebody's is indeed having a retirement plan so pastors can have retirements at the end of wonderful lifetimes of ministry. So, but the challenge is, is that invariably, we've seen this hundreds and hundreds of times, the string keeps growing and growing and eventually the mission starts slowing. And soon people in the denomination look around and they say, what are we here for other than supporting the string? And so the string becomes the focus, not the mission that that it was supporting before. And what I would say is the great thing for Christian leaders and pastors to do is to make sure that the string's there, the string's healthy. Don't despise the string, but make sure the string is primarily driven by supporting the mission. The centrifugal work of partnering together for the gospel is why denominations and networks should exist. Therefore, the string should support that, not slow, deter, and ultimately end that as it has countless times. We'd be naive at best, reckless at worst not to think that what's happened to all so many denominations before us, eventually the string became the focus and the mission, well, was subsumed to the support of the structures that once were created to support the mission.
0: One of the most important aspects of renewing your church or your family of churches is remembering the why, why you worship, why you give why you come together in partnership in the first place. It's putting first things first. It's recognizing the gifts of God in your midst and seeking to steward those well for the benefit of the church and the extension of God's kingdom. It's deciding not just to complain about the areas that need work, but instead to find a place to make a difference, even a small one, seeking to restore the health and vibrancy of whatever church or denomination you've inherited. It's trusting that God is at work all around you and longing to join him in his work. We'll be right back. As we've seen in this podcast, many churches are in distress or seeing decline these days. We live in an ailing culture in need of grace and healing. And so I want to tell you about my book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, because I believe that rediscovering the goodness of the gospel and recapturing the relevance of historic Christian teaching, that is what is going to reinvigorate the church in our time. The, the future of the church is going to be forged by those with roots that run deep through the ages of the Christian church and back into the pages of God's word. It's not going to be led by those who jump on the bandwagon of fads and fashions, no. The future is going to follow the path of pilgrims who seek the Spirit of God, who are thrilled by the discovery and definition of orthodoxy. So I hope you'll check out the book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, and that it will reinvigorate you as well. When I think about the presence of different denominations today, I think of different houses in a neighborhood. A beautiful home contains furniture. Some of the furniture may give the house a sense of character and personality. Great houses are often big, with many rooms, and larger denominations often have subgroups that live comfortably in the home, in one wing of the house or another. In an anti-institutional age, some might question the need for houses altogether. Aren't they a burden? Old houses need constant work of renovation and repair. Wouldn't we be better off to throw together mini houses or live in RVs or find a place in one hotel or another? I don't presume to make this judgment call for anyone else. God may call some to this kind of mobility. God may move you from one denominational home to another. But I believe there is something to be said for doing whatever you can wherever God has planted you. A healthy denomination much like a healthy house, does not exist for its own sake. It is open for the benefit of others, and it serves a purpose for those who live there, to be a place of refreshment and empowerment for the larger mission of God. A well-established house and yard need not become a prison for the people inside or a compound designed to keep people out. One of the ways we remain good neighbors is by recognizing that we have gifts that others in the neighborhood might benefit from, and that other homes may have strengths that would strengthen us. This season, we've looked at some of the formidable obstacles that stand in our way as we strive to rebuild the church's witness in our time. We've looked at the phenomenon of dechurching, the anti-institutionalism of our age, the crisis of masculinity, the pervasiveness of pornography, confusion over sex and gender, the rise of AI, the prevalence of spiritual burnout, and breakdown in the family. You may be listening and wonder if there's anything you can really do when so many of these obstacles seem insurmountable. Let me encourage you to find a place somewhere on the wall. Like the men and women in Nehemiah's day who were tasked with rebuilding the fallen wall around Jerusalem, find a place on the wall where you can be part of the restoration. No, you can't do everything. But everyone can do something. What part of the church's brokenness? What challenge to the church's witness do you feel most passionate about? Where might your gifts match up with the church's needs? Where could your strengths match up with the church's weaknesses? I've been inspired lately by a number of young people who belong to Gen Z who are rolling up their sleeves and ready to get to the work of repairing and rebuilding. In an article for Mere Orthodoxy, Stephen Peter makes the case for a posture to the world that shows how Christ repairs culture.
1: Deinstitutionalization and subjectivism create the perfect opportunity for the church to teach the world how to live in the world. While people may appreciate the anti-authoritative impulse of these forces, many more are starving for a script to make sense of their lives. More than 40% of 12th graders find it hard to have hope for the world. The pessimism reveals a profound aching for a roadmap. In a word, my generation needs a culture. We do not know how to flirt, date, parent, or even grow up. We have no role models. How does Christianity minister to this mood? It means showing the way. It means being the role models of communal life. It means offering people a way to live that's grand enough for everyone to participate. The posture of repair attunes the church to its need to minister and preserve society on the verge of breaking down. Our culture does not give guidance on how to interact with the opposite sex. The church can aid in modeling romance, flourishing marriages, and fulfilling family life, saying, here is how you date, let us help you. Here is how we've married, let us help you. Here is how we've parented. Let us help you. Our culture is marked by profound loneliness. The church can model generous hospitality and deep commitment to the community. Our culture does not know how to have hope in times of adversity. The church can model suffering and perseverance. No one else is gonna repair these institutions. Only the church can. A life that lives with no script is one destined to wander. If the church wants any serious commitment to engagement, it must lead people from this desert to the land of abundant life, pointing to the one who first repaired us.
0: Restoration emerges in the crucible of faithful service. Remember, tearing stuff down is easy. Trying to fix what's broken is hard. Hope is hard. Let's not take the easy route of just pointing out all that's wrong. Let's be part of making things right. And let's trust that God will be with us as we navigate through the stormy waters. Picture a landscape transformed, marked not by the scars of defeat, but by the service of love, as displayed by those who faced the challenges head on in the power of the Spirit. Let's become an oasis in the arid desert of secularism a foreshadowing of reconciliation a testament to the ongoing ripple effects even 2000 years later of the risen christ's emergence from the grave
3: we are baby.
0: Reconstructing Faith is a podcast powered by the North American Mission Board. If this podcast has been helpful to you, it would be helpful to us if you'd leave a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to and share it with your friends. Reconstructing Faith is written by Trevin Wax. Our show is produced and edited by Scott Slusher. Our sound design is composed, mixed, and mastered by Dan Phelps. Aaron Leslie handles audio editing and engineering. Story editing and consulting is by Amy Simpson. Please check out my book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Rediscovering the Adventure of Christian Faith. Thank you for listening.